Well, this morning, we are beginning our yearly Christmas series, I guess you would call it. We've been talking about stewardship for a few weeks, but I like to begin talking about Christmas early because Christmas is something that has to be, you've got to remind yourself of and you have to meditate on it to get its full impact. Because, it, because it's something we've been doing since we were kids, maybe, and something you've heard so many times that it can kind of become a little bit dull to the senses. And so I like to begin meditating on it early so that the, the meaning of Christmas is not lost in the hustle and bustle and the presents and the gifts and the, and the, the feasting and, you know, all the holiday fun and the lights and the events and everything that goes on, which is great. I'm all for that. I'm all for celebrating what Jesus did in any way we can come up with, uh, you know. But sometimes we can get so caught up in that that we're, we're missing the power of, of what we're really celebrating. And I don't know about you, but even as a pastor, I've found myself approaching Christmas like maybe I'm on the 23rd or the 24th or approaching the 25th. And I'm like, man, I don't know that I've even taken time to really meditate and think about what this season really means and I've been so busy doing all these other things that I just I kind of took it for granted. And that can happen. So I like to start meditating on it early. And uh, I try to meditate on it during my prayer time as well. You know, during my devotional time, I will uh, read the Christmas story. You know, I love to read the Christmas story out of the book of Luke because it has the most details. And I, I like to read on it and think about it as Christmas is approaching so that I don't ever lose uh, how impactful what Christmas really is and, and what it's really about. So we're going to start this morning, and I'm, I'm titling this sermon this morning, it's, it's called The Fact of Christmas. And what I mean by that is that Christmas is a fact. It's not uh, something that happened years ago or maybe happened or has changed or, you know, sometimes the way we approach it, especially in movies and things, like there's this magic element to it, right? There's this almost fairy tale element to it. Well, that's not the case. Christmas is a fact. It's a historical event that happened. And that's kind of what we're going to focus on this morning, first and foremost. So the question becomes, why do we believe anything at all? You know, if I asked you this morning, do you believe in Christmas? Do you believe Jesus, the Son of God, came as a man, was born to a virgin, grew up, died you know, was resurrected for the sins of the world. Do you believe that? And your answer might be yes. The question becomes, well, why do you believe anything? Okay, and, and even with that specifically, I would like to ask you, well, why do you believe that? Okay, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe in the Bible? What, what is it that is like the cornerstone or the bedrock or the foundation of your faith? And sometimes people haven't even really examined this. Is it because you grew up in a home where people taught it to you, and so you just accepted it all along? Is it because you went to church and you heard somebody tell you? For a lot of us, it's probably a combination of things. It's not just one thing. What we're going to talk about this morning is just a piece of where our faith comes from. It's not the whole piece. It's just a, it's just a part of it. And, and that is this, that Christmas is a historical fact. Now, without... without Proving it, so to speak, by history, how many of you would still believe? I mean, I don't, I don't need a history book to tell me that Jesus is real. And I have a, that's really not what my faith is based on. However, there are a lot of historical facts, and we're going to talk about some of those things 
this morning. So the birth of Christ is most often told from the book of Luke because of the great detail with which he describes the birth of Christ. Now let's talk just a little bit about Luke because I want you to think of the Bible this morning not as a religious text because even though the Bible is a religious text, it's also a history book. And what we have in there is eyewitness accounts going all the way back to the the book of Genesis. We have eyewitness accounts and uh, stories, narratives of what actually happened in people's lives. So in the book of Genesis, you get the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, on into Joseph, and is telling the founding of the, the nation of Israel. These are historical facts. These are Many of these facts are actually collaborated outside of the Bible. But the Bible alone is a historical book. So see, sometimes when people think, they go, well, the, you know, oh, you got that from the Bible. Yeah, but that's like saying, well, you got that from, you know, like I'll mention some historian that was around the time of Jesus, like Josephus. Oh, well, you got that from the history of Josephus. Well, yeah, because that's one place. He's one person that gave an account. Well, the Bible is also that. The Bible's not just a religious book. The Bible is also a historical text. And there are other historical texts that validate and corroborate what the Bible says. But it is one example of the historical facts that happened during that time. And actually in the New Testament, the gospel accounts specifically were written as historical narratives. They were, they were not really written as religious texts. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are four different accounts of a historical event that happened. The reason why they were written was to explain to people, this is who Jesus is, this is what happened, this is what we experienced. We followed him for three years, these are the miracles he did, this is how they killed him, this is how he came back to life. It's mainly a history book. It's, it's what Jesus taught, what he did, what happened in his life. Now, Luke, one of the gospel writers, is one of my favorite books because of how detailed Luke is. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and you get the same thing in the book of Acts. You get a huge amount of detail. I mean, he was, he was a historian. Luke was also a medical doctor. So he, has, he's, he was a physician. He was a historian. And among theologians, Luke is considered to be the most educated New Testament author other than Paul the Apostle. He is, to, he is considered to be the most detailed writer in the New Testament. In other words, when you get accounts that happened from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can go read those same accounts, uh, excuse me, Matthew, Mark, and John, you can go read those same accounts in the book of Luke, and you're usually going to get de- extra details. And it's not that, it, it's like any eyewitness. You know, if four people in here saw one thing, we're all going to explain it from our personality. You know, if, if we all today went and gave a recap of this sermon, you may mention a few points, you may talk about what happened in the service, and another person is going to say something totally different. Is either wrong? No, they're, they're both accurate, but they're from different perspectives. And depending on your personality or what stood out to you, what moved you, you're going to focus on one thing, while another person <clears throat> is going to focus on something totally different. This is why when law enforcement, they're trying to piece together uh, an event, they're going to want to talk to multiple eyewitnesses. And they're ne- the accounts are never going to be exactly the same. They're going to be close. They're, you're going to piece it all together. And from what everybody said, you're going to get a full picture. Well, that's what the Gospels are. The Gospels are four 
eyewitness accounts, four accounts of what happened in Jesus' life. They give different details, different information. They'll talk about the same sermon and focus on different parts of what Jesus said. And if you only read one gospel, you could walk away thinking, well, this is what Jesus said. Yeah, but when you read this gospel, you also get this piece of information. And so it's putting them all together where you get the full understanding. However, Luke is the most comprehensive. Luke didn't leave very much out. Luke is very comprehensive and very detailed. Dr. Norman Geisler, he's the author of one of my favorite books. If you've never read it, I strongly encourage you to read. I, I strongly encourage every Christian to read this book. It's called, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And the concept of the book is that no matter what you believe, it takes faith to believe it. And so I don't have enough faith to be an an atheist because there's just not enough evidence that supports it. And the book is so comprehensive, just talking and and proving Jesus, proving God, the existence of God, not just, you know, from the Bible, but from every piece of evidence available, including science. But Dr. Norman Geisler makes this statement in his book about Luke. He says, he correctly records the names of local politicians, local slang, local weather patterns, local topography, local business practices. He even records the right depth of the water about a quarter mile off Malta as their ship is about to run aground in a storm. In fact, he records at least 84 such details in the last half of his narrative. That's talking about the book of Acts. So everything that Luke writes in his book... It's so detailed, Luke, uh, the book of Luke and Acts. It's so detailed that historians have gone back to try to corroborate and prove what he said. If he said the water depth was this, well, those things were recorded. They could go back and check. And 80, they found 84 different things that were able to be proven, yet Luke said this and history proved it was accurate. The reference that he makes about the 84, he didn't come up with that. This is from a classical scholar and historian named Colin Hemmer, who chronicles Luke's accuracy in the book of Acts verse by verse. With painstaking detail, Hemmer identifies 84 facts in the last 16 chapters of Acts that have been confirmed by historical and archaeological research. Now, again, my faith in Jesus is not based on what I'm telling you, but it's still important. It's still important to know that we're not believing in something that has no evidence or no proof or no basis. And it, it gives credence when we read Luke chapter 1, verse 1, when Luke says this. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. And this is how, this is how Luke begins his account in Luke chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. So he says, What I'm going to write to you about has already been written about. Right? People have written about the life of Jesus. Maybe he's referencing the other uh, uh, Gospels that have been written. We know that Luke wasn't written first. Probably Mark was. But he, so he says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Verse 3, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So this is how the book of Luke begins, and we get a great idea of why Luke is taking the time 
to write this gospel message. He says, people have already done this, but I'm going to do it with greater detail and, great, and even greater accuracy. And he writes it to a man named Theophilus. The short version of who Theophilus is is that no one knows really who Theophilus was. There are speculation, there are theories, but no one knows. He also wrote the book of Acts to this same person. So maybe uh, people think because it says most honorable Theophilus that he was some high-ranking official, very possible, but we're not going to get into that because it's kind of irrelevant to uh, what we're talking about this morning. But he says, I've taken time to write a careful account for you so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So see, that's kind of what we're doing this morning. He tells Theophilus, he says, you are already taught all these things. You already believe all these things. But I'm going to take time to research this and write a careful account so that you can be certain of the truth that you've already been taught. Why? Because I've seen in Christians' lives people that have believed the faith for a long time, and that's mostly just what they had, faith. As I've seen where Satan will sometimes use that against them, they'll try to come in their mind, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Or they'll read some crazy thing on the Internet, and they go, oh, I never thought about that. Well, every believer needs to know that what you believe is not just based on blind faith. That actually when all things are considered, this is actually the only thing, the only conclusion that you can come to. You know how sometimes people have theories about stuff and everybody look at it from 10 different angles. There's this theory, there's that theory, and then there's the truth of what actually happened. The Bible is the truth of what actually happened. It is, the, it is the correct version of what actually happened. And this actually uh, has led many people to Christ that have taken time to study these things. For example, uh, these are some books that I've read that in most cases the author di- was not a believer and started out, his, their whole goal was to disprove Christianity. Some of these people were professors. Some of them were investigative reporters. They started out to disprove Christianity. And so they, they used their skills and the things that they'd become proficient at to actually disprove the Bible. And several of them in that process became Christians. Because the evidence was so overwhelming that it wasn't possible to disprove it. An example of that is called, one of the books is called The Case for Christ. This was by Lee Strobel. Excellent book. I've read it many times. It's one that is worth revisiting, even if you've already read it. It's called The Case for Christ. I think they made a movie about it. I've not seen the movie. But Lee Strobel was one of those. I believe he was the one that was an investigative reporter. And he set out to disprove the Bible. And in the end, became a Christian because the evidence was so overwhelming. Uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, of course, one of the greatest thinkers of our time. His book, Mere Christianity, he spends the whole book proving the Bible, not from the Bible. Okay, not, doesn't use the Bible to prove what he believes at all. Just from science, from nature, from man, the nature of man, from conscience, from things like that. He shows how there is a God and why it is the God of the Bible. Josh McDowell wrote, a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now, we could stand up here and go through all of their details and everything that found, but we'd be here for weeks going through everything. So I just give you the books. And, of course, the one I mentioned earlier, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler. Now, considering the fact that 
are coming from the perspective that the Bible is not just a religious text, but it's a historical document as well. How does the Bible hold up against other documents, other historical documents? And this is a funny, this, this can be quite entertaining, actually, if you listen to someone that's trying to disprove the Bible. Because all of their reasoning, if it were also applied to other historical documents, what they would effectively be saying is that no historical document can be trusted then. And if you've ever listened to someone, if you've ever listened to someone try to explain or try to prove that Jesus doesn't exist, that Jesus didn't exist, he was not a real person. Well, you can't do that because there's more evidence for Jesus than there was for people like Napoleon and Alexander the Great. That's how overwhelming the evidence is for Jesus. So if they apply, well, Jesus didn't exist, here's why, here's why. Well, if you apply those same standards, you're going to also eliminate Caesar. You're going to eliminate Genghis Khan. You're going to eliminate a lot of historical figures by that standard that you're using. But, of course, people that do that are not really unbiased. They just they have, a, they have a certain viewpoint that they want to push forward. But actually, there's more evidence for the person of Jesus that it's really not even, even for someone who's a complete atheist. They never start there that Jesus was not even a real person because that's, that's too overwhelming. So they will say, well, he was a real person. And based on history, yes, he was crucified. That's not even up for debate or discussion. There's, there's too much evidence for that. So yes, he was a real person. Yes, he was born this time. Yes, he was crucified. That's always given. There's not even any discussion in, in, in among you know, anyone who's honest. There's not even real discussion among that because there's just too much proof and too much evidence for that. So of course where the divide comes in though, okay, yes, he was crucified, but was he resurrected? And that then becomes the defining issue. And a lot of these books that I mentioned earlier, they will explain and show the, the evidence and the proof for that. But one of the things that comes up often in this instance is, well, if he wasn't resurrected and these people weren't telling the truth, why were they willing to be beheaded? Why were they willing to be boiled in oil? Why were they willing to be crucified up, upside down then if the whole thing was a hoax and the whole thing was made up? And you have to answer that question. And why were thousands martyred to protect this, this book and stand for the faith? So then that becomes another problem that people have to explain away. But anytime you're looking at history and you're comparing history with history, what are you looking for? Well, number one, okay, because, you know, we could stand up here and say, do you believe George Washington was the first president? Yes. Okay, why? You weren't there. Okay, why do you believe that? Well, basically someone told you or you read something and you believed it. So this is why you have to come to the point where you understand that actually all history is based on faith. I wasn't there. I'm reading what someone else wrote. So there has to be enough evidence that you go, well, this justifies my belief, right? This justifies my faith that this is correct. You know, a lot of people don't believe that we landed on the moon, right? Well, it's history. People say it, but there's a lot of people go, well, I don't believe that there's not enough evidence. Well, I say a lot of people, maybe it's not that many, um, you know, there's still, there's still whole groups that believe the earth is flat, right? Because they say, I haven't seen enough evidence. So you're never going to convince everybody, all right? But all, all history, in a sense, 
is based on faith. I have to believe something I'm reading or something a teacher is teaching me because I wasn't there and I didn't see it for myself. So this becomes a very important part anytime that you're going to believe anything that you read or that someone else tells you. So what is the standard for history? Not talking about Bible, just when, when people are looking at history and determining whether it's correct or not. Here's number one thing is the source. What, what, is the, what was the source? Okay, who gathered the information? How did they gather it? And why did they gather it? So who gathered it? How and why? That becomes the number one most important thing in establishing is something historical fact or not. Second, and this is almost as important as the first, are there multiple sources? In other words, is it just this one person that said this? Or are there multiple sources that independently tell this story that we can compare what they said to see if this is accurate or not? History becomes very questionable when there's only one source. You know, this person said that, but we don't have anyone else telling that story. or We don't have anyone else telling us about this event. So, number one, what is the source? Number two, are there multiple sources that tell the same story in the same event? Number three, are there, are there multiple eyewitness accounts that can be examined against one another. Now, there may be multiple sources, but those sources might not have been eyewitnesses. In other words, they're relaying information they heard from someone else. So are there multiple, uh, are there multiple interviews, are there multiple statements from eyewitness people that were there and they actually saw? Because y'all know how this works. I mean, somebody sees something, they relay it to you, you relay it to someone else, they relay it, and by the time it gets to the fourth person, it's almost myth at that point, you know, of what happened. Now the alligator's 15 foot long, and then 20 foot long, you know, it just on and on. So you want to go to the eyewitness, you want to know what did, tell me what you saw, not what they said, they said, they said you saw. So are there multiple sources, and do we have any eyewitness accounts of those events? And then for history that happened hundreds and even thousands of years ago, another big question becomes, are there multiple copies of these accounts? In other words, did we just find one manuscript, and that's all we have? And, and that manuscript we know is, of course, because it's, it might be hundreds or thousands of years from the original writing, because, you know, they didn't have copy machines and emails and all of that, so these things were handwritten, so when you find a manuscript that, let's say something happened in, you know, 1 A.D. And, you, and then it was written about in 5 A.D. And then you find a manuscript uh, about that event, but you're not finding the original manuscript. You're finding copies of that down the road that were handwritten many, many times. So you might... the 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 earliest surviving copy of something that was written in 5 A.D. might be 500 A.D. And, of course, we know there were other copies, but we, can't, we don't have them. They're gone. They don't exist. So then it becomes very important to have multiple copies of the same account. Why? Because these copies are so far from the original writing that we need to compare these copies to see are there differences because they were handwritten. And, and so anytime you find historical documents, let's say there's 20 manuscripts of the historical document, there's going to be discrepancies. Because these were handwritten. Sometimes people added stuff. Sometimes people cut stuff out. Sometimes people didn't know how to spell. 
So there's discrepancies between the manuscripts. So in any historical document, it becomes very important to find multiple copies so that those copies can be compared and to make sure that you have the right wording and, and everything's just right as it was said. Nothing was added. Nothing was taken away. Okay, so when considering all of that, where does the Bible compare to these standards? Well, the answer is, is that it stands out. Leaps and bounds, it stands out. To the question of who gathered it, how, and why, well, the, we'll look at the New Testament specifically. Remember, the Bible is not one book. The Bible is a collection of many books. So you might look at the Bible and say, well, we only have one book that tells this history. First of all, that's not true. There are many historical writings about the time of Jesus outside of the Bible. Josephus, as I mentioned earlier, being one. But the, the Bible is not one book. The Bible is a collection of letters, the New Testament specifically, that there are nine authors in the New Testament. These are nine people that all tell the story in a different way and from their eyewitness account of what happened. That is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, Jude, and the author of Hebrews, which we're not sure who that is. So nine authors over 27 books who gathered the information. How and why did they gather it? How? They were eyewitnesses. They wrote it down. They saw it firsthand. Why? Because they had an experience with God that changed their life forever. One of the things you could see <clears throat> from these authors and from the gospel accounts is how they looked before and how they looked after they encountered Jesus. It changed everything about them. That was why they wrote it. The question of why becomes important was because did they profit from it? Did they gain? Did they, did they gain anything by making it up? The answer for the apostles and all of the New Testament authors is the exact opposite. No, it cost them everything. And the incentive for them would have been to be quiet about what they heard. They experienced jail, beatings, martyr, martyrdom. They lost property. It cost them everything. The, er the earliest believers that were writing this, there was no incentive for them to say the things that they said. So in questioning the source and how and why they wrote it, this becomes a question of, well, did they write this because they were gaining something from it or what was the motive? Well, when that's looked at in the authors of the Bible, it, it actually becomes hard to figure out why, why would they have put themselves through this because it cost them everything. The other issue that comes up is, again, we talked about uh, are there multiple sources? Yes, of course, it stands out with that. This issue of multiple copies, let's look at that compared with other historical Writing. So the number of manuscripts, okay, the number of ancient handwritten documents. Let's look at other historical writings of the times. So some popular works from that time is uh, Caesar's work, The Gaelic Wars, okay? There are 10 surviving manuscripts of this document, Caesar's Gaelic Wars. 10 manuscripts from different time periods that they can look at and compare with one another. The works of Plato that we've all heard about, seven manuscripts. There's only seven surviving manuscripts. The Annals of History by Tacitus, 20 manuscripts. And the, the most, the, the best case scenario is the Iliad by Homer, which there's 643 surviving manuscripts, ancient manuscripts of that work, the Iliad by Homer. What about the New Testament, 5,000 
surviving manuscripts, and that's, that's only in Greek, just Greek. There's 10,000 in Latin and 10,000 in other languages on top of that. A huge part of this has to do with the, the finding a few years ago of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of you know, I've heard about that. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, not only did they find more manuscripts than we ever even had combined in that one finding, but also the earliest manuscripts that we ever had were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So this became very important. F.F. Bruce, who's a famous theologian, said this. He said, the evidence for our New Testament writings is ever so much greater than the evidence for many writings of classical authors. The authenticity of which no one dreams of questioning. And if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all Doubt. In other words, if the same standard was applied to the Bible that is applied to other historical writings, there would be no question. But there's a different standard that's applied to the Bible than that's applied to other historical writings because people don't want it to be true. What about the date of the manuscripts? Obviously, the closer the date, the better, right? If you had something written in 5 AD, it'd be great to have a manuscript from 5 AD. That'd be the best case scenario. You'd love to have the original copy, right? But if you had something really close, the closer it is, the better, because as time goes on, the more it can change. So again, let's look at these other historical documents. Caesar's Gaelic War was written in 100 BC. The earliest copy we have is 900 AD. That's a thousand year gap. So we, the earliest copy we have is from 1,000 years after it was written. The works of Plato was written in 400 B.C., the earliest copy we have, also 900 A.D. That's a gap of 1,300 years. The Annals of History, written in 100 B.C., earliest copy is A.D. 1100. That's a gap of 1,000 years. The best, again, is the Iliad, because we have so many copies of that one. It was written in 900 B.C., and the earliest copy we have is 400 B.C., so that's a 500-year gap between the time it was written and the first earliest surviving manuscript that we have. What about the New Testament? The New Testament was written, of course it was written over a period of time because it's not one book, so it was written from A.D. 45 to A.D. 96, so a period of about 50 years. The earliest copy that we have is of John's Gospel, which was written uh, in A.D. 85. So 35 years, as little, the, the earliest manuscript we have is as little as 35 years from the time that it was written. Again, there's nothing else even close when it comes to that time period. There's nothing else even close that compares to that. There are other, there are the other New Testament writings vary from that same time period, 35 years up to 300 years uh, after. But the earliest one we have is as close as 35 years. So again, it doesn't even... Compare If we look at the Bible and compare it to these same standards they hold other historical texts to, the, the Bible wins first place over and over and over again. Now, again, I don't need any of these things for my faith to be based on. It's good information to have. I, I'm glad it's there. I'm glad the Bible stands out. But that's not what my faith is. I believed in Jesus long before I knew any of this. I believed in the Bible long time before. I knew any of this. All this did was strengthen my faith in what I already believed. And I go, oh, okay, well, 
Because what we believe should be true, right? I mean, there, if it is true, then there ought to be proof for it. And that's what we end up finding. Let me tell you something that did affect my faith, though, even as a young man. And still, this, to me, is top of the list of everything that we've mentioned. And that is the biblical prophecies. There's no other book in the world that predicts the future accurately, perfectly, and when examined, no mistakes over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Let's look at one such example, and there are hundreds, there are hundreds of these examples in Scripture. When I've had people ask me before, well, just, if you just had to give me one reason why you believe the Bible, I say prophecy. Prophecy. Because the Bible says things would happen, and it's not up for debate. Again, we have manuscripts of when they were written. We have the original manuscripts of when they were written, and then when things happened in history hundreds of years after. So there's no, there's no debate about it. And, and I think God set it up that way on purpose. But let's look at just one of these things that the Bible predicted, that being because it's at Christmas, the birth of Christ. Here are the things that the Bible prophesied hundreds, sometimes thousands of years before Jesus ever came onto this planet, that he would be born in Bethlehem. Now, that's pretty specific. A lot of cities over there in Israel that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem was prophesied in Micah chapter 5 two. I, I, I encourage you, we're not going to go through all of them. Write these down. Go examine it for yourself. The fact that Jesus, uh, that the Messiah would be born in, in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. That he would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. That he would be from the lineage of David, 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 9. That Jesus would retreat to Egypt, Hosea 11.1. 1. That Herod would massacre the children, Jeremiah 31.15. That Jesus would be rejected by his own people, Psalm 69 and Isaiah 53. That he would be betrayed for silver and the exact amount. Zechariah eleven twelve, That he would be crucified between two criminals. That his hands and feet would be pierced. That not a bone would be broken. That he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. That he would rise from the dead. Psalm sixteen ten and Psalm 49, 15. And there are many, many more on and on. Things in the Old Testament that were prophesied about the life of Jesus, and every single one was fulfilled, and not one was wrong. And that's just about the life and birth of Jesus. That, that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of things that the Old Testament prophesied about nations, kings, about Israel, things that would happen and did happen over and over and over again. Peter Stoner and Robert Newman wrote a book entitled Science Speaks, and they address this issue of prophecy in there. Uh, these, that's where these, uh, this list comes from. And they made uh, this statement. They said, fulfilling only eight of these prophecies about Jesus would be the equivalent of one in 100 quadrillion. The chances of fulfilling one person coming into history and fulfilling only eight of the things in Scripture that were prophesied about Jesus that the chances of that are one in 100 quadrillion. At some point, you might as well just say it's impossible. Because <laughs> one in 100 quadrillion, I think they tried to give some example of if you took the state of Texas and you filled it up with quarters, I think it was like eight or 10 feet high, and you put one red mark on one quarter and you randomly just 
walked out into the state of Texas and picked one quarter, it'd be the chances of you finding that one quarter with the red mark on it. That's how impossible or ridiculous it is. But there's something else that Christians have. And again, I dare say the majority of people in this room, this is probably where you're at. And that is your own eyewitness and experience account with Jesus. In other words, you don't even necessarily need anything that we're talking about this morning. It's good to know. It's good to have. But for many in this room, you say, well, yeah, but I have my own personal experience with the Lord Jesus and my own experience of coming to faith, my own experience of him changing my life, my own experience of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's an ongoing experience. I mean, how many of you in the worship service this morning, you experienced it this morning? I, so it's a, it's a daily ongoing thing. And I've had conversations with people where we discuss these things and they're, you know, you're never going to convince them about it because they've already made up their mind. And, and I come to the point where I say, look, you can believe what you want to believe, okay? But I have an experience with God. It's like trying to convince me that my wife is not my wife. I've been married to her 20 years this year. I, I know my wife. I know who she is. You're not going to convince me there's no God because I know him and I, and I speak with him and I have a relationship with him every day. So, so Christians have that. It's not only all of these things, but we have our own experience with God as well that is just another addition, another piece of the puzzle. Why does this become all so important? Because the Christmas story is not, it's so much more than that. It's not just a story. It is the path of life. Jesus came into the world and he said, I am the light of the world. If Christmas is not true, okay, if Jesus didn't come, if this is all just a fairy tale, guess what? We're all on our way to hell still. We will die in our sins there's no path to Christ. There's, there's no connection to God without Christ. So this means everything. John 3.16, of course, we know so well. But listen closely in the light of what we're talking about. Listen to what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, people make up their own reasons around Christmas time about why Jesus came into the world. They'll say things like this. they say, you know, and this is usually people that aren't, you know, particularly uh, close to Christ. And maybe it's, you know, for them it's kind of a, just a special time of year and things like that. And, and they'll say, well, you know, Jesus came into the world to show us what love is. Well, that's a, that's a good sentiment. No doubt his life did show us what love is. But actually... I like to let the Bible just speak for itself on these things. Why did God come into the world? It's very clear, John 3, 16. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. You see, this was a rescue mission. This wasn't about showing you the way of love. Did that happen? Sure. I mean, yeah, sure. We learned a lot about love from watching the life of Jesus. It wasn't about peace. Only, it wasn't about joy, all the things we make Christmas about. There's some of that there. But let me, let me tell you something. Your eternity was at stake. The world's eternity was at stake. Without this, 
all of mankind would be permanently and separated from God. So when I celebrate Christmas, I'm not just going, oh, love, joy, peace, you know, all the good, warm feelings that we all have, and which, by the way, Christians love to ha- uh, non-Christians love to have at Christmas time as well. I mean, just about everybody in the country celebrates Christmas, even if they're not Christian at all. Even if they don't believe in Jesus or God at all, they love to celebrate Christmas because... And this is the problem we've experienced throughout history, by the way, is people that love the blessing and the effects and the benefit of God, but they don't want God himself. Oh, everybody loves the experience of Christmas. There's something magical about it. There's something so warm and and fuzzy and special and pleasant about Christmas. It stands out above every other holiday, but let's not forget what it's based on and why it is so significant. Because the God of the universe loved you enough, loved mankind enough to take his only son and sacrifice him for you. So Christmas is not just about, oh, the love and the joy and the peace. It was a rescue mission that without it, he says, you would have perished and not had eternal life. Verse 17, if we keep reading, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. You see why we're talking this morning about these things is because the belief part. The belief part is what changes everything. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was the son of God? That he was born of a virgin? That he was crucified and resurrected for you? And that his life purchased your salvation and paid the penalty in your debt? Do you believe that? He said it's all the difference. He said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Now, you want to find out why some people do not believe in Jesus. Okay, you want to find out why some people do not believe in God or do not believe in the Bible. Listen, it it has nothing to do with evidence. I know people think that. It has nothing to do with evidence. It has nothing to do with proof. It has nothing to do with that. Let me, he tells us right here why some do not believe. He said, this is the judgment. This is why they're condemned for not believing. This is what he says. Because the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It has nothing to do with evidence. And here's how you can know. Because you will go find things in their life that they do believe and that they adhere to and they hold to dearly with all of their life and it will not be based on facts or evidence. And if the same standard was applied to that as they apply to the Bible, they would reject that also. Because as I was saying earlier, everything that people believe is based on faith to a certain degree. You, and, and many people say, well... Why do you believe that? Oh, well, I was, a, you know, I was in college and my professor taught me X, Y, and Z. So you're basing, you're going to base your whole system of belief on that person and what they taught you rather than the people that wrote the Bible. So you're just making a choice. And the, the sin nature is so deceptive that we don't even realize that's why we're choosing it. But here's what he said. No, he said, here's the condemnation. The light came into the world. In other words, the truth the, the thing that actually brought light, the, it was the, the real thing, the, the fact, the truth came into the world. 
But people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In other words, I want to believe that God is not real. I want to believe that Jesus is not real so that I can keep on sinning and I can keep on living and I'm not accountable to anybody or anything else. It's the sin nature that drives people to ignore facts and ignore evidence so that they don't have to submit their life to Jesus Christ. So belief becomes the most important and the main issue. So here's what I was wanting to talk about this this morning for is because we have a lot of reasons why we believe what we believe. Some of them uh, you know, are based on our own experience. They're based on things that, that we've heard and we found out for ourselves over time. And there are some in here that you needed to hear the things we were talking about this morning. You needed to hear the facts. You needed to hear it because maybe you were questioning that in your mind. And look, if that's you, there's a lot of reading out there for you. A lot more than I could give you this morning in just one sermon. But I already mentioned to you several, several books and, and um, you know, other material that you can read that to me lays out the case beyond a shadow of a doubt. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, are there still people that could read it and, and disagree with it? Yeah, for what we just read in John chapter 3. But if that's you and you need that, that's okay. Everybody starts somewhere. A lot of the men that wrote these books, that's where they were at. They needed something tangible. They needed some sort of firm evidence. And that's out there for you. And if you're a Christian who you're you know, just as, as firm in your faith as ever, I still encourage you to read it. I still encourage you to read it because... Uh, it strengthens our faith and it, and it helps us lead others that may have some of these, some of these questions as well. Amen.